All right. Welcome, one and all, to the second episode of The Paleo Conservative. Today we'll be talking, in a roundabout way, about the rule of law. There's a phrase you may hear, mostly used in liberal circles, othering. People who use this term would say that to other someone is to treat them or refer to them as being fundamentally different than your group. If you're familiar with the 10 stages of genocide, for example, I think it's basically the same as the first stage in that list, which is called classification. It's separating people into us and them. As you can imagine, the them in this case is perceived to be inferior to the us. Now, I'll start off by saying that everyone treats their in-group differently than others. It's just human nature. If your best friend was in a fight, you'd be hard-pressed not to want to jump to their defense. If your child was thrown in jail, I don't think you could just stoically lean back and say, I'm confident justice will prevail in due course, and I'll just stay out of this. So if othering is step one of genocide, and othering is an unavoidable part of human nature, does that mean the seeds of genocide are sitting there inside us all? Well, firstly, I think any survey of human history will conclude that, yes, absolutely, there seems to be a gravity that pulls humanity towards atrocity time and time again. To that end, there's one organization you've no doubt heard of whose goal is to stop any movement that might lead to a political climate that allows for genocide. They call themselves anti-fascists, or Antifa. So I think Antifa, certainly in the United States and certainly in the last decade or so, is deeply misguided. But for the sake of fairness, I'd like to offer the best argument I can in their favor. I'll start by saying that in the name of a more liberal society, they're highly illiberal. In the name of tolerance, they're highly intolerant. They're thuggish and violent, and every bit as reactionary as the reactionary right they oppose. When challenged on this, here's the argument I'm most likely to hear. I mean, honestly, I'm a little embarrassed to repeat this because it's such a facile argument, but I've seen this in writing so many times, I may as well just say it. Antifa stands for anti-fascist, and if you're against Antifa, you are therefore for fascism. Obviously, that's not an argument. It's just kind of a play on words. I could just as well say that since the Nazi party was the National Socialist Party, anyone who claims to support socialism is a Nazi. You went in expecting a well-reasoned argument, and you came out more or less with a dad joke. So, were I an Antifa supporter, here's how I'd defend them. Antifa is violent, thuggish, and even at times fascistic on a smaller scale to make sure that fascism never has the opportunity to grow on a national scale. Some ideas are so dangerous that they can never be tolerated, and if you cross that line, you can maybe expect a brick in your face. Think of it as an odd perversion of Pascal's wager. The potential consequences of a fascist uprising are so great that they're more than worth the cost of punching some loser in the face. I don't actually want to dwell too much on Antifa, except to say that they happen to be the most socially accepted violent ideology around. They're also a clear representation of this concept of othering, where some people are considered reasonable targets for violence. And a final note, do bear in mind that its proponents will tell you that Antifa is not an actual organization. You can think of it like, like Alcoholics Anonymous. There's no membership dues, there's no corporate office. It's just some folks who like to get together from time to time and light buildings on fire. So let's set them aside for a moment and jump to Kenosha, Wisconsin and the infamous Kyle Rittenhouse shootings. More specifically, let's talk about the people he shot during that Black Lives Matters protest in August of 2020. Really, the person who kicked the whole sequence of events off was a gentleman by the name of Joseph Rosenbaum, whom Kyle shot and killed. Forgive me for saying so, but Rosenbaum was just a bad person. He had a long history of convictions, he spent years in jail, he was a registered sex offender for crimes against children. And the thing is, if you watch the videos that night, he was just mean and he was violent. He clearly wanted to have a violent confrontation with Mr. Rittenhouse from the moment he first saw him. He confronted Kyle, tried to grab his gun, and got himself shot. 
The next person to be shot and killed was Anthony Huber, who certainly was a bit less malevolent than Mr. Rosenbaum, but still also had a remarkably long criminal history. Domestic abuse, felony strangulation, false imprisonment. Like Mr. Rosenbaum, he had been in prison, though just for three years rather than the 14 that Rosenbaum had served. By the way, what are the odds of this? If, if you picked any two people off the streets, what are the odds that both of them would be violent, convicted felons? Where I live, at least, the odds are basically zero. Kyle had to use deadly force to protect himself from two people at these protests, and they both turned out to be convicted felons. It's really just bizarre. Or maybe not. This was an occasion where civil authorities were more or less tolerating violent protests. Perhaps it's no big surprise, after all, that violent people were drawn to the events. Video shows Rosenbaum acting belligerently towards anybody who wasn't there for the protest, anybody who wanted to protect property rather than destroy it. According to a witness, he was angry that Kyle had used a fire extinguisher to put out a dumpster fire. You had a violent person, a situation that encouraged violence, and a clear us-versus-them mentality. Kyle, in this case, was different, and therefore, he was a target. Now I'll jump to an unexpected place, though one that people on the right might be familiar with. The Ruby Ridge Siege in 1992. It centers on a man named Randy Weaver. Mr. Weaver was a white separatist, and he deeply distrusted the federal government, but all the same, he wasn't violent, and he mostly just wanted to be left alone to live with his wife and four kids on his land. A federal informant asked Mr. Weaver to sell him some illegal sawed-off shotguns, which he did, and the whole thing began. It's, it's just an outrageous and tragic story, but I don't really have enough time here to do it justice, so I'll offer a very brief outline. For the two shotguns, he was charged with the manufacture of illegal weapons. After a lot of bumbling on the part of the government to communicate his court date to him, Mr. Weaver became a fugitive for failure to show up to a court date that he was never notified of, and the U.S. Marshals were sent to arrest him. The Marshals, dressed in fatigues and armed with machine guns, set out to arrest him at his cabin. In an just outrageous series of acts of incompetence and negligence, they killed Mr. Weaver's dog, they shot and badly injured his best friend, and they killed his 14-year-old son, Sammy, by shooting him in the back as he was running away. So we're now on a proper armed standoff, and the FBI's hostage rescue team was involved. The snipers from that team were provided a set of rules of engagement that allowed them to kill any adult they see outside of the cabin for any reason. One sniper in particular, Lon Horiuchi, took these rules to heart and shot and wounded Mr. Weaver while he was going to visit the body of his son and shot and killed his wife, Vicky, while she was holding her 10-month-old baby. Afterwards, the FBI spent a day or more cruelly taunting Mr. Weaver, asking Vicky over a loudspeaker how her day went, if she needed help with the baby, etc. Mr. Weaver eventually surrendered and ultimately was convicted of the fairly trivial charge of missing a court date and of a probation violation. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison. The surviving Weavers sued and were awarded over $3 million in damages. The local prosecutor tried to prosecute the FBI sniper, Lon Horiuchi, but the case was transferred to federal court due to the supremacy clause and then dismissed due to sovereign immunity. This also turned into a bit of a saga I won't go into now, but Mr. Horiuchi ultimately was never really held to any sort of criminal or professional accountability. So he wasn't prosecuted, fired, or demoted. In fact, he was invited to the next major federal government standoff in 1993 in Waco, Texas, with the FBI and the ATF facing off against the Branch Davidians. Once again, I'm not going to go into detail about Waco, but between it and Ruby Ridge, there have been countless books, documentaries produced, songs written, memorials erected, etc. Much like the Weavers, the Branch Davidians wanted to be left alone, and they distrusted the federal government. Their leader, David Koresh, had numerous wives, some of whom were probably underage. They were weird. They had strange religious beliefs. They were 
others, and that probably made them easy targets. And the whole scenario, really, it's a lot different and much larger in scale than Ruby Ridge. In, in this case, there were 126 Branch Davidians under siege by the federal government. And when all was said and done, 82 of them were dead, 25 of whom were children. The, the whole scene was horrifying. The compound caught fire and collapsed. The FBI used armored combat vehicles. Most of us would call these tanks, but military types would probably correct us on that, to punch holes in the compound and to launch gas grenades at them. It's all been about as analyzed as the Zapruder film at this point, and people disagree about whether or not pyrotechnic tear grass rounds or flashbangs started the fire, or if it was mass suicide by immolation. Lon's colleagues in the FBI hostage rescue team apparently wanted to prove to the world that FBI snipers are among the most horrifying humans on Earth, so a bunch of them went and posed for pictures in the rubble of the compound. You can Google these pictures if you want, they're real, but imagine a big muscular guy in fatigues cradling his favorite rifle, standing on the smoldering ruins of a building with an actual burnt human body in the background. Also, obviously, the bodies of the 25 dead children and 60 or more adults have yet to be recovered from the rubble under his feet. Three different snipers stood in the same spot and posed for the same picture. Also, just so you know, these FBI snipers claimed that they never fired a shot, despite there being evidence and testimony to the contrary. Now, what could Ruby Ridge, Waco, and that night in Kenosha all have in common? Well, for one thing, they're both cases where violent people were allowed to act on their violent impulses. The government and all of society should have enforced the rule of law. Surely a mother holding her infant daughter is someone that society should protect, but instead Horiuchi was given license to kill her. And obviously we have this sense of others that I spoke of before. If an FBI sharpshooter's neighbor's house burned down, I doubt he'd go and pose with his gun next to their smoldering bodies. But somehow the Branch Davidians were just different enough that he felt no shame doing the same, standing on the bodies of their burnt children. Kyle Rittenhouse, misguidedly or otherwise, set out to bring some order to a night of chaos, and for that he was targeted. For that, he was viewed as the other. You'd think the government might have said, hey, thanks for trying, sorry he got jumped by a violent sociopath, but instead they opted to prosecute him. But actually I'm not quite done with Lon Horiuchi just because he plays a small part in something that comes a few years later. And you should know, by the way, that he's still infamous to this day. In 2014, a rifle manufacturer, bizarrely, brought him on as a spokesman for their products. Immediately, a boycott was called for. Their social media accounts got flooded with photoshopped ads saying how effective their rifles were for killing pregnant mothers and how stylish their rifles looked when posing over the bodies of dead Americans. Needless to say, the sponsorship didn't last long. And also, for the record, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms has also been disliked for about as long as they've existed. Go to a gun show or a gun shop, talk to a random gun owner at a range, you'll find no love for these guys. So, back to the mid-90s. There was a man who made a small living setting up a table at gun shows. He had strong anti-government leanings. He would sell trinkets with anti-ATF and FBI slogans, among other stuff. Here's a quote from a book called American Terrorist. He also distributed cards printed with the name and address of Lon Horiuchi, the FBI sharpshooter who had killed Vicki Weaver at Ruby Ridge, in the hopes that somebody in the Patriot movement would assassinate the sharpshooter and others who took part in Waco and Ruby Ridge. Now, I'll take a moment here and say that I think it's a shame that Idaho was unable to prosecute Mr. Horiuchi. Clearly, justice would have been served by having a jury of Randy Weaver's peers deliberate on his crimes, but it never happened. Maybe the response here, giving out the address, is just normal human nature. We, we've seen some great injustice, and if the normal avenues of justice fail us, well, maybe we can't help but muse about seeing the perpetrator suffer some bad fate. Did any right-wing gun owners at these shows see the cards and get all angry that he was degrading the rule of law? Were they, were they mad that he encouraged extrajudicial vigilante justice? I'm, I'm going to guess not. I think there's a good chance you already know who I'm talking about here. 
He never did show up at Lon Horiuchi's house, and as far as I'm aware, no one else ever did either. But on April 19, 1995, the two-year anniversary of the deadly raid on the Waco compound, this man killed 168 people with a truck bomb in Oklahoma City, Timothy McVeigh. And this was the most deadly domestic terrorism incident in U.S. history. For the record, I don't think anybody at those gun shows ever would have imagined his capacity for violence. And as so often the case, he was on law enforcement's radar, but still they surely wouldn't have predicted that he would become the most prolific mass murderer in U.S. history. I think people on the left would call his distribution of Horiuchi's address a canonical example of what they call stochastic terrorism. The idea is that you don't outright call for violence, you just subtly hint that some person is evil, is an other who is undeserving of the protections civil society provides. He would no doubt say that providing someone's home address, which is just a matter of public record anyway, is protected free speech. If someone opted to go and do something crazy with that info, it's hardly his fault, right? He probably is a good example of sarcastic terrorism, though I think the left chooses a lot of bad examples. If you point out, for example, that a school is teaching an ideology that offends the sensibilities of most of its constituents, that seems to me a call to use legal means to change the curriculum, not an invitation to bomb the school. They're also surprisingly uncritical of people who employ the same doxing tactic of Mr. McVeigh, though. When someone publishes J.K. Rowling's home address and suggests that you show her this new cinder block you just bought, or they let you know exactly what hotel room Jordan Peterson will be staying in before his event this evening, somehow that gets a pass. It may simply get a pass because these people have already been declared evil or declared Nazis. They are others, and obviously we can set aside the rule of law where Nazis are concerned. Unfortunately, Antifa has been known to put this Nazi label on people for some pretty frivolous reasons. They oppose mask or vaccine mandates, they disagree about climate change, or they question whether or not males should be in women's prisons or competing against them in sports. I have no idea how many people the anti-government right has killed, but obviously, Timothy McVeigh's actions mean it's at least 168. And as much as I may dislike Antifa, as far as I'm aware, there's been exactly one Antifa-associated outright murder in the U.S., and that killing was done by Michael Rinell. Rinell was troubled. He was listless. He felt his life had no particular aim. He wasn't a Joseph Rosenbaum-type character. He wasn't a lifelong criminal and a persistent agent of chaos. People seemed to believe he was nice. He had a reputation for diffusing violent situations and breaking up fights. It's hard to analyze these sorts of things, but sometime around the time he became active with Antifa, he, I guess he became paranoid. He thought far-right forces were out to get him, and he became militarized. Suddenly, his social media showed an obsession with a violent confrontation with the right. He offered his son a quarter pound of weed and a hundred bucks for a gun. And by the way, he was almost 50 years old, not the 20-something you might expect from what I've described so far. On August 29, 2020, he waited in ambush for a member of an organization called Patriot Prayer to walk past him, and he shot and killed a man named Aaron Danielson, who, by all accounts, was not really threatening him or anyone else. Rynell was very easily identified by his distinctive tattoos. I, I think 4chan actually made the connection first. He gave an ill-advised interview to a journalist a day or two later, and after that, he was charged with murder by the federal government. Agents went to arrest him, and he was killed in the process. Members of the task force claim he shot at them first, and they were forced to kill him, and there are people on the left who would say he was basically executed. Obviously, I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't suggest that a bit of skepticism is always warranted when dealing with the actions of federal law enforcement. There were apparently no body cams, so nobody really knows. One might think his Antifa-aligned friends would look at this in a moment of introspection. This man was effectively radicalized, and it cost him his life. Perhaps they view him as a cautionary tale against spreading violent ideologies. Except, no, no, they don't. 
The only lesson they seem to have taken from the Rhinell saga is the need for better operational security. Don't talk to journalists. Don't let anyone film you. So now they beat up journalists and live streamers along with the so-called Nazis. So, well, now we've got a pretty diverse list of factions that I've discussed today. And what do all these people want? Well, Antifa would like to prevent a fascist uprising. Okay, sure. I think a lot of us would prefer that violent goons not go around arbitrarily declaring harmless people fascists and get beat up for it. The Kenosha protesters, at least on paper, want to see police deprive fewer people, specifically fewer black people, of their life and liberty. They want police to respect people's rights. I think that is reasonable as well. Kyle Rittenhouse and others would like to see Kenosha's business district not get burned to the ground by those same protesters. And I personally would like to see federal government snipers shoot fewer mothers in the head. So, what might society have in its tool belt that can satisfy all of these different needs? Well, I think we have two things, and we should take care to preserve them. Firstly, we have the rule of law, a necessity for any developed civilization. People should be confident that their place of business, their livelihood, their home won't be burned down by an angry mob or by a government tank. People should feel safe to speak unpopular ideas. And secondly, we need that wonderful phrase from our 14th Amendment, equal protection under the laws. It doesn't matter if the person trying to attack you or your property is a protester for a popular cause, the police, or a federal agent. If they violate your rights, they should be prosecuted. And also, it shouldn't matter if you're Jewish or gay or black or some stupid white kid trying to put out fires or an actual literal Nazi. No one should be able to physically attack you or deprive you of your rights. If we jealously guard and vigorously enforce the rule of law and the equal protection of us all, no one should ever be able to send us down the path of tyranny, atrocity, or genocide, or fascism. I do intend to speak more on the rule of law and the subject of law enforcement, but I think this is enough for today. As always, thank you for listening.